Well, it is a uh, great privilege to be here with you this morning. We, uh, we have felt very much at home at Palm Vista. We have uh, really counted this to be one of God's unexpected blessings to us as a family as we've come back into this community for a season. Uh, we uh, recently heard of Palm Vista and, and didn't know how long you all have been here. And uh, when we joined in worship, uh, we remember our first Sunday here you were singing uh, a mighty fortress is our God. Martin Luther, in Spanish, you were singing to a Latin beat. So we, we knew we were in Miami. We knew this was the place we needed to be. And uh, we've been greatly uh, encouraged by our time here. We've been impressed by your warm fellowship, your authentic worship, and really your love for the Word of God. So we have felt right at home and, uh, and have been very thankful uh, for this church in our lives. You've stirred our affections for Christ. And uh, that has contributed greatly to our renewal as we have a time of sabbatical from ministry. And uh, the other thing I was just struck with, really, I'm sure you know this and you're very aware of it, but you have uh, two very godly pastors who love Christ and who love this church, who love you. And it is very obvious to us that you have been shepherded well. You have been pastored well. And uh, so it's been a natural connection both with Al and with Corey and their families uh, to see their ministry here and to see the fruits of their ministry. And uh, you, I know, are thankful uh, for God's provision of them unto you as a people. And uh, so it's been great great for us to to share in that in our time here. I want to talk to you this morning about about change, about transformation. It's a very fitting topic this first Sunday of the new year when when change is on everybody's mind as we consider resolutions and what we are resolved to do in the year ahead perhaps as we consider the previous year and the things that have taken place in our lives. But I want to think with you about transformation about change from, from a biblical perspective. And before we do that, let's pray, and then we'll open God's Word together. Fathers, we come before you this Lord's Day. We rejoice that we can sing of your praises. We can sing so freely. And uh, we come, Father, asking, appealing to your mercy that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from Your Word. Would You do it, Lord, by Your Spirit and, um, and by the power of Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. Well, ha- have you ever made the observation, have you ever noticed, or do you know perhaps some, some non-Christians who are actually nicer kinder, even better than some of the Christians you know. You ever, have you ever made that observation? Have, have you ever asked, why is that? Well, how could that be? One of the great thinkers of the 20th century, C.S. Lewis, asked that very question in his book, Mere Christianity. And he did so in a chapter entitled, uh, Nice People or New Men? And this is what he says. 
If Christianity is true, why are not all Christians obviously nicer than all non-Christians? What lies behind that question is something that is very reasonable and something that is not reasonable at all. The reasonable part is this. If conversion to Christianity makes no improvement in a man's outward actions, if he continues to be just as snobbish or spiteful or envious or ambitious as he was before, then I think we can suspect that his conversion was largely imaginary. See, Lewis is saying it's reasonable to expect some kind of improvement in the post-conversion life of a believer, of a Christian. Yet, he goes on to make the point that Christ's work in the heart of man is not ultimately about improvement, but it is about transformation. Listen to what he says. A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world, and might even be more difficult to save. For mere improvement is no redemption, though redemption always improves people, even here and now, and will in the end improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons. This was precisely the point that Corey made last week. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. See, God's work in sending His Son into this world to die on the cross is ultimately about producing a new kind of man. It is at its core about transformation and change. So I have to ask, do you know that kind of transformation in your own life? Do you, do you know what Lewis is talking about here? See, the key to this kind of transformation is, is a, a two-part dynamic. It's repentance and faith. It is how real change happens in the life of the believer. These are the, the two oars, if you will, that will propel a vessel forward. Repentance and faith. See, often we don't understand repentance in the church. Sometimes we misunderstand it altogether and we think that it's not absolutely necessary. We can somehow come to Jesus but not repent of our sin and not turn to our sin. That would be a misunderstanding. Other times we, we think it's necessary, but it's really only necessary at the beginning of the Christian life. The Bible says repent and believe. Therefore, we repent, we turn from our sin, and we believe. And, and, and often, uh, otherwise, we, we think that, that, well, repentance, that's for the big sins. You know, when, I, when I've really blown it, well, that's, that's what I need. That's what I need to do. I need to turn 
from my sin. I need to turn to Christ. I want to suggest those would be misunderstandings. We, we fail to grasp that repentance and faith are a necessary, constant activity in the life of the believer. You see, the Gospel is not just a truth about us that we are sinful and need a Savior and that Christ died on the cross and raised again and conquered sin and death. It's not just something we affirm with our minds. It is a reality we must experience in our souls. In the depth of our souls. When uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, nailed his 95 thesis to the Wittenberg door, uh, he began with this thesis. He said, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed that the entire life of believers was to be one of repentance. All of life is repentance, Luther says. You see, he understood that repentance is the best sign of our growing and being conformed to Christ. He understood the the necessity of continual change and repentance and turning from sin. And many after him began to grasp that. There was a pastor many years ago, his name was Thomas Watson, a godly pastor, and he said this, the two great graces essential to a Christian in this life are faith and repentance. These are the two wings by which he flies to heaven. Faith and repentance preserve the spiritual life as heat and moisture do the natural. That's a a right understanding of of the centrality of faith and repentance to the Christian life. And so as we look at this passage before us this morning from Luke 7, I want you to see the nature of true repentance, the nature of true faith, and then the result of true repentance and faith. It's a very straightforward passage uh, before us. And I want you to grasp the central teaching that that repentance and faith are necessary and essential for first coming to faith in Christ, but then for living the Christian life. Let's turn, uh, if we can, to uh, Luke chapter 7, starting in, in verse 36. Luke writes, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answered, say it, teacher. Our story begins with 
Jesus invited into the home of Simon, a Pharisee. And as you know, the Pharisees were the power brokers of the day. They were the religious leaders in a religiocentric society. They were rich and, and well off, and they would have nothing to do with Jesus. See, theirs was an adversarial relationship. They were at odds with him. They were contentious, even belligerent in engaging him, for their authority and their power were being called into question by Christ himself. Yet Simon is a little different, isn't he? In some ways, he's like Nicodemus. He, he is curious. He's, he's open to Christ. He, he wants to know and understand who he is. And so he invites him into his home. We don't know his every motive. Some are skeptical of Simon, but we see clearly that he opened his home to invite Jesus in. He wanted to hear from him. So Jesus goes and he sits at the table and and Luke says, Behold, that that is, look, something amazing is about to happen. Something shocking is about to happen. A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, came to see him. You see, this woman wanted to see Jesus as well. In the same way that Simon did. But she comes differently. See, this woman of the city is a term that meant she was a professional prostitute. She was well known in the city as a woman of ill repute. Three times in the passage she's described as a sinner. She's devoted to her sin. And so a woman who had lived a life of sexual sin, comes to visit Jesus while he's in the home of this upstanding, righteous Pharisee. That is scandalous. That is shocking. And the reader wouldn't miss this. And even more shocking is what she does in this home. Unabashedly, there are two things that she does that are astounding. First, she lets down her hair. Not, not a, a, a big deal in our culture today, but, but in this culture, it, it was significant. Do you, do you know that the act of letting down her hair in public was an act of such intimacy that the rabbis had ruled that if a married woman let down her hair in public, It was grounds for divorce. It was an act of intimacy. She lets down her hair. She also anoints Jesus with ointment, with perfume. This was unseemly. That such a woman as this would do such a thing as this in such a place as this, in this Pharisee's home. And not only does she let down her hair, but but she begins to weep and to cry. And, and these, this is not the heavy sobbing of a heavy heart. These are, these are tears that gently roll down the cheek. And, and they are tears that, that well up within. 
because they are tears of joy. She had engaged Jesus at some point. We don't, we don't know. We don't know how she came to an understanding of who He is, but, but she began to understand who He is. And, and, and out of joy, she worships Him. See, these tears are an outward expression of an inward sense of well-being and rejoicing. She's not ashamed of her actions in the least, for they are an expression of her genuine love and her worship of the Savior. It's a stunning picture to grasp the fullness of what is portrayed before us by Luke. And now she begins to pour out perfume. She reaches for this alabaster flask that hung around her neck and and it contained something precious, this this aromatic perfume. And and it it was everything to her for a number of reasons. First, it was it was considered an object of beauty and attractiveness. It it was made of shaped stone or perhaps glass and and it had a small hole in it so that the perfume could waft through the air without spilling. You see, the aroma only added to its beauty. Why is that? Well, to be perfectly frank with you, this is a desert climate. And uh, it was a little unsavory, to say the least. The aroma of the day was eau du naturel, perhaps. But for this woman to have this perfume around her meant she had an aesthetic, an allure, an attractiveness about her. So as she would walk through the crowds, you would take note, not simply because of her appearance, but but because of her aroma, because of her attractiveness. And it would be distinct. It was part of her allure. She was beautiful. This was part of her appeal. It was part of her trade. It was also more than likely the most valuable thing in her life. It meant everything to her. It was her greatest possession. See, for a prostitute, this would have been the essence of her trade. Necessary for what she does. Essential as one of her tools of the trade, so to speak. See, the only thing she had in the whole world was her desirability, her attractiveness. It is what she trusted in. It's what she rested in. It was her security. It was what enabled her to carry out her work. And yet, she takes what is representative of that desirability and she breaks it open. And she pours it upon the Savior as an offering. Friends, this is what genuine repentance looks like. I want you to see it in its fullness. It is earnest, genuine. It is costly. And it is representative of her turning from her way and her life and turning to Christ in a new way and a new life. 
You see, without ever speaking a word, she is saying, I see the depth of my sin and I'm turning from my sinful ways. I'm taking what was precious to me and I'm leaving it behind and I'm pouring it upon the Savior. I am, I am turning to Christ and turning from that life. Friends, let me speak honestly with you. If you have lived in this world apart from Christ for any season of time, it's almost impossible to escape a Christless life without engaging in sexual sin. It's the nature of our culture. And if you have known that kind of sin, or even know it this very day, then you know the weight of that. You know the burden that you bear and how it weighs heavy upon the heart and how easily it controls you and, and controls and shapes your thinking. Even when the sin stops, the effects still linger and the consequences go on sometimes for a lifetime. Sexual sin ravages the human person. See, the memories uh, are triggered so easily and so quickly. Sometimes the slightest of thing brings back those memories and reminded of that life of the past and, and the pain and the sorrow and the disappointment because you, you pursued something that was not by God's design. It was not His intent. It's not what He had purposed for you. It's not what He purposed sex for. And so the weight of that bears heavily upon you. And perhaps the temptation, temptation does as well. If that's the case, I want you to look at this woman this morning. I want you to see her with, with great clarity. See, for her to take these things that were precious to her, her hair and her perfume, and give them to Jesus was to say, there is a better way to use these things. There is a better way to use my body. For God's purposes and not my own. For God's pleasure and not my own. She's saying, these things are yours, Lord. They are no longer mine. I will no longer need them. I give them to you. I've always trusted in my desirability, in my beauty, and now I trust in you. No longer will this be the thing I trust in. No longer will it master me. No longer will it control me. You see, her repentance is genuine. It is authentic. It is costly. It's the evidence of genuine godly sorrow for her sin. And it exhibits her brokenness, her contrition, her self-denial, and her humility. It is a beautiful repentance in the eyes of the Savior. So I have to ask you, this morning, as the Lord has brought you here, has purposed that you be here this very day, if you know this kind of repentance, and, and I have to ask, what are these things that you cling to? That you take 
your security and your confidence from, that you trust in? Are they beauty and desirability and physical attractiveness, perhaps? Maybe they're wealth and riches and security from your own abilities to procure these things. Maybe it's, it's, it's your, your job, your ability to, to uh, excel professionally that your confidence and your trust is in. Maybe it's power, control, or, or your independence. These are the things that you hold on to. What are they for you? And what would it mean for you to turn from these things and trusting in these things to turn to Christ and trusting in Christ? Well, there's at least three lessons I want to learn from this picture of repentance this morning. The first is this, that a deep sense of our sin is absolutely necessary for genuine repentance to ever occur. It has to start with that understanding of our sin and a conviction of sin. Some of you have been in church for a long time. Maybe your whole life. And, and, uh, and maybe you haven't seen much growth. Maybe you find yourself kind of on the treadmill, if you will, and battling the same things and not seeing the kind of growth you would desire. And, and I want to suggest if, if that's the case, and then then maybe you don't have an awareness, a, a sense of, of sin and, and, and the offense of that before God. Uh, perhaps when your conscience becomes tender and it's, it's pricked, instead of dealing with it, you turn from it. In, instead of seeing it for what it is, maybe temper or anger or or, or just impatience or the things that so easily kind of run through our lives. Instead of addressing that and bringing it before Christ, you turn from it. You deaden yourself to it. You don't deal with it. And, and you don't see your sin for what it is before Christ. See, there's no dynamic of repentance and faith if that's what's going on. There's, there's no propelling forward because that... That engine is not in place. See, when God pricks your conscience, you file away that sense of guilt, if you will. Because you have no place to address it. I want to address just five very insufficient ways we deal with with that, that guilt or that tender conscience to particular things in our lives. Just, just very simply, these are the these are the ways we dismiss it. First, we might minimize it. We don't call it what it is. Well, it's not a lie. It's, it's a fib. It's a little white lie. It's just kind of stretching the truth a little. We, we call it something else. We minimize it. We also excuse it. I was having a bad day. I'm not feeling very well. I have a headache. It's not, you know, it's just, just been a hard day. And we excuse our actions. I'm under a lot of pressure, a lot of stress right now. And we don't, we don't rightly address it. We will often, thirdly, blame shift. It's not my fault. It's, it's, it's his fault. It's her fault. It's, it's somebody else's fault or the circumstances, but it's not me. 
In our home, we call that the blame game. And it happens quite easily, I must say. Uh, Sometimes we'll medicate it. We will deaden ourselves to to that sense of sin. We will drink our way out of it. Or find some other vehicle to escape it. That's the fifth thing. We will look to run from it, to escape it through fantasy, through illicit relationships, through social networking, even through busyness. That we we find ways to make ourselves so busy that we don't really have to deal with that sense of conviction of sin in our own hearts. That's how easily we can dismiss it. And if those are the things we do, if those are the habits we practice, then we are not turning to Christ in repentance and faith. You see, what we need to do is to pursue genuine repentance. And we can do that in four very straightforward ways. It starts by examining our own hearts. That we actually take time and set it aside that we would prayerfully, under the guidance of the Spirit, examine our hearts before Christ to say, Lord, what, what are You showing me about my life and about how I speak to my wife and how I raise my children and, and how I conduct myself in my business and with my co-workers? What, what are the things You want to show me in my own heart? And as He shows us, we need to be honest about our sin and not minimize it or dismiss it. We need to root out deceit. We need to uncover sin and not hide from it, but bring it rightly to God. Thirdly, we need to look at our motives. What drives us? Why do we do the things we do? Why do we say the things we say? What are the motives of my heart? as I do these things. And lastly, we need to cultivate a heart inclined toward godly sorrow for sin. Sin has become so commonplace. It always has been in our culture since the fall. But we live in a society that approves of it, doesn't deny it, and doesn't uh, point us away from it. And so rarely do we sorrow for it as we ought And so we need to sorrow not just for the consequences of sin, that it's caused this to happen in my life, but for the sin itself. And then as you do these things, as you examine your hearts, and you see sin for what it is, your hearts should melt like heated wax. And you should take your sins to the cross. To the cross. And stop... uh, unmasking your sin, you can't just do that. You can't just see it for what it is. You have to rightly deal with it and then seek the forgiveness of Christ. It is what His blood was shed for. The more you practice these things, the more you grow in grace. The more you grow in grace, the more you are transformed and changed by Christ. See, when you repent, you are admitting you're not good. And when you admit you're not good, you become dependent upon Christ's goodness. And when you become dependent upon Christ's goodness and not your own, you are walking in faith and repentance. 
Well, as you practice these things, they will come more quickly and readily. That is the nature of true repentance. That it would be our disposition as those who follow Christ. The second thing I want you to see clearly here is the nature of true faith. It's what follows in Jesus' conversation. He says, Now when the Pharisees who had invited Him saw this, He said to Himself, If this man were a prophet, He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching Him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. Friends, whenever Jesus says, I want to tell you a story, you better believe you're in trouble. It's, it's, not, it's not the first words you want to hear from the Savior. And so Jesus begins to tell a parable, a story about a money lender and two debtors. One debtor owed 50 denarii, the other owned 500 denarii, about a year's wages versus a month's wages. Neither could pay back their debt. That's the point. And so the money lender canceled both debts. And Jesus asked Simon, which one do you think will love me more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. See, the point of this parable is that one debtor understands the cost of canceling debt to a far greater degree than the other. And and that debtor responds with an appropriate affection, an appropriate love for the money lender. You see, there's not a banker on this earth that doesn't understand this fundamental principle of lending. You can't just wave off a debt. It doesn't just disappear. It, it has to be canceled by the benefactor, and then the benefactor bears the cost of that debt. Every banker understands it. Every believer needs to understand it as well. Jesus says the person who knows the cost for which the benefactor bears will be filled with transforming love. That's the nature of genuine faith. That's at the heart of it, that our affections are rightly for Christ when we understand what He has done. But that can never happen if we don't understand the nature of our sin. So Jesus now begins to press His point with Simon. He says, Then turning toward the woman, He said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Friends, listen to what Jesus is saying. Simon, you, you think I'm a teacher or best a prophet, but, but she sees that I have come to bear the cost of her debt for not living right. She sees me for who I really am. 
Simon, you've come by compulsion. You're a religious leader. It's the right thing for you to do to invite me into your home. But she comes by attraction, by affection and love. See, both the woman and Jesus, or both the woman and Simon, want to see Jesus. They both come to Him. One is utterly changed, blown away, utterly transformed. The other is miffed and bewildered at what he sees. Why is that? Why is that? How do you explain that? I'll explain it. You see, Simon comes in a cool, reserved, uh, detached, distant, intellectual sort of way. He's, he's engaging his mind, but he wants to keep his distance. He doesn't want to get too close to Jesus. He's calculating. He's not sure what this is going to cost him. So he keeps him at a distance. He, he approaches the Jesus the same way that some of you approach Jesus. At, at, at an arm's length, so to speak. But not the woman. She comes with her whole person, with all of her affection, not concerned for what anyone will think, and she comes... With, with a hunger and a desire to know Jesus and, and to, to, to love Him, to pour out her affection upon Him. She's totally vulnerable. And as a result, she is transformed. And she's transformed because she knows the reality of her sin and she has seen the Savior clearly. See, she... She understands the cost of salvation. Simon doesn't. Simon doesn't get it. There was a uh, pastor, uh, again, in Thomas Watson many years ago. He said, Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. See, the more bitterness we taste in sin, the more sweetness we taste in Christ. When we see the bitterness of sin, then the Savior becomes all the sweeter. And if you don't see the extent of your sin, you're not going to be amazed and thrilled by the grace of God. She's amazed because she sees her sin, she trusts in Christ, she puts her faith in Him, and she's changed. She has a personal relationship. Simon has an intellectual one. If you don't know the kind of joy that characterized this woman, then perhaps it's because you don't know the depth of your sin. And you haven't seen the forgiveness of Christ like she has seen it. It's possible to relate to Jesus without becoming vulnerable, without giving of your whole heart and your whole self. It is, in fact, possible to be religious and look more like Simon than the prostitute. But there will be no joy. And you will keep Jesus at a distance. The joy will only come when you see your sin and you see Christ for who He is. And you see your need for Him. Every moment of every day for every sin. See, she broke the flask and in doing so, put her whole trust in Christ. You have to ask, what is that flask for you? Who gets your heart? Who, who captures your allegiances? 
What do you live for? What, what do you seek satisfaction in other than Christ? Will they ultimately satisfy you? Will they never leave you like Jesus? I've heard uh, one pastor define saving faith this way. It is the transferring of your fundamental basic life trust from where it is to Jesus. And that's right. It's, it's not just trusting in Jesus in some general way and finding out uh, that, uh, that, that you can still kind of keep these other things in your life. It's, it's taking those other things and pouring them out at His feet and transferring your trusts wholly to Him that you rely and depend upon Him. It is what it means to repent and believe. It's possible uh, that, that we say we trust in Christ and yet live in a life where our functional trust is really elsewhere. And, and the things we trust in day to day are really not in Christ, but they're in our own abilities, in our own ways, in, in the things that we have pursued with our lives. That was, that was the case for Simon. He had excelled as a religious leader. That's where his confidence and his identity came from. And so he misses Christ completely. And Jesus says to him, look at you, Simon. You're distant. You're aloof. There's been no change, no transformation in you. You have disdain for this woman. You don't understand that you are like her. You you are sneering at her. You are a slave of your religion and your righteousness and your responsibility and you have missed completely who I am. She doesn't care of what others think of her at all. And she marvels at the wonders of grace. Simon, you don't understand your sin and you don't understand the cost of my sacrifice for you. You don't see me pouring myself out for you because you don't think you need a Savior. You don't see yourself as being that bad. She makes me preeminent above all things. You treat me like just another guest. If you're like Simon, and, and you try to live under the lie that you're alright, then you will miss your need for Christ and you'll be miserable in this life. And you will seek satisfaction and joy somewhere else and it will never satisfy, ever. This woman sees the cost of salvation. He doesn't. She is trusted fully for the forgiveness of sin and Christ says, your sins are forgiven. What, what beautiful words to hear when you come genuinely to Christ. That your sins are forgiven. There is no weight of the sin that can prevent you from the forgiveness of Christ. There's there's no sin that is greater than the forgiveness and the love of Christ. I don't know where you come from or what your background is. Um, I know, uh, I know you in a sense because I know myself and I know my own heart and I know my own background. 
And I know the forgiveness of Christ for sin and His forgiveness is far greater than any sin that I have pursued with my life. How do we further this kind of faith? Simply by turning from sin and the false gods that control us and turning to the Son of God who frees us. And also by turning from our functional trust, those things we really trust in day to day, turning from those and turning to Christ in wholehearted faith and dependence. And thirdly, by grasping the death of God's mercy toward us as sinners and the cost of forgiveness that it cost the Son of God His very life so that we might grow in grace and that we might be transformed and increase in our affections for Christ. I said there were three lessons I wanted you to learn. The first is a deep sense of our sin is absolutely necessary for genuine repentance. The second is that the sense of God's grace to you will determine the fullness of your affection for Him. The more you understand Christ's work on the cross and what He's done for you, the more your affections, your love will increase and grow for God. And there's a third lesson, and I'll conclude here. It's pertaining to the result of true repentance and faith. It is, it is the lesson of divine love. What's the result in this woman's life? Verse 50, Jesus says, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Go in peace. That's the result of true repentance. See, the lesson is this, that the love of the Savior is greater than the sin of the sinner. The love of the Savior is greater than the sin of the sinner. This woman comes face to face with her sin and she repents and in doing so, Her sins don't mitigate against her joy. In fact, the deeper she repents, the more joy and peace she leaves with because she's been honest about her sin. She sees Jesus for who He truly is. As sovereign Creator, Redeemer, King, the only one who's able to forgive sin. Luke doesn't want you to miss that. See, if you don't have a heart filled with peace, if you're not living a life of selfless love, if you don't find it easier to love sinful people, if you don't find it possible to enjoy your life, to be content with peace of God, then then you've missed something along the way. If, If you are critical all the time, or you're complaining all the time, or you're finding fault in everyone else, or perhaps you're bitter, or angry, or despairing, or hopeless, or spiteful, or snobbish, or envious, or obstinate, then it is because you don't fully understand the Gospel. And you don't fully understand repentance and faith. And if there is, if there is one thing that would happen this day, it would be that, that you grasp that anew and afresh that you might know the transformed life that Christ speaks of. Friends, I, 
I don't know all of you. I've met many of you. We've been struck by your warmth to us. And every week we've come, someone has extended themselves to us, introduced themselves to us, and welcomed us into this fellowship. It has been very endearing to us. But I know that in an audience's size, there will be some who don't understand the Gospel. There will be some who are not Christian, who may be just religious. And, and, and you're not living out of the Gospel, but something else. I want you to see with clarity as you look to this woman and you see Christ, what that means and what it looks like. So that you would know peace. So that you would live daily, day by day, moment by moment, by repentance and faith. That you might be truly transformed. So that you can run, not like a horse, but fly like a winged creature. Let us pray. Father, we marvel at Your wondrous grace. Beyond, uh, beyond anything we could have scripted, Lord. Because You deal rightly with, with our sin by the blood of Christ who became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Father, for those who hear this day, I pray You would press Your Word upon their hearts for there to be repentance and faith that they would see You, Christ, in all Your beauty, in all Your grandeur, in all Your loveliness, that their affections would be for You and You alone that their trust would be in You alone. Such that they might be transformed under Your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.